Welcome everyone to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox and I'm here joined with my lovely co-host Liz Murphy. Hi Liz. Hello Mim. Good to see you. Hi everyone. We're very blessed today to also be joined by our colleague Danika Thomas. Hi Danika. Hello. Our listeners might remember Danika from the decolonisation episode that we did a little while ago. So great that you can come and be back with us again. Awesome. Thanks for inviting me back. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And um, what's great about that episode was that that was more of a supervision episode, but we've got you here today because we really just want to have you involved in the conversation. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Really good. So this is a big one today because it's um, centering around the issue of abortion. So a heads up for our listeners that that's the topic of the story of this episode. Um, but it's kind of an important story, I think, for us right now in the context we're in in Australia. At the moment, abortion laws are being reviewed. And I know that this is a common thing in other countries, especially maybe some of our listeners from the States. This is something that comes up fairly regularly. But for us in Australia, this is something we haven't really experienced Definitely in my lifetime, it feels like this hasn't been a massive issue. Mm. Would that be the same for you guys? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting story to be doing. We're hearing from two social workers who uh, worked in an abortion care service. It's a service that no longer is in existence, so they're speaking about their experience at the time. And we're going to do it in two parts. The first social worker is going to tell us the story of this case that they were both involved with. We're going to have a chat about that. And then we're going to listen to the second part where um, the social worker actually talks about what came next. Yeah, so it kind of leads us to have a different discussion as well, which I think is really exciting. We haven't really done that yet Mm. on the podcast. That's really good. Great. So let's listen to the story and then let's come back. See you soon. Bye. So this is a story um, about uh, a service that I worked in at a major metropolitan public hospital that provided um, maternity care and abortions. And this was in uh, as a social worker in the team that provided abortions in that hospital. And we were a really busy service and uh, we had a lot of clients coming through very rapidly and needed to be seen very quickly because with unplanned pregnancy you need to make a decision very quickly and you know you don't want the weeks to go on in terms of um, best um, care for women. Um, Having an abortion in the first trimester is pretty important. So um, one day I was the um, allocated counsellor. We provided options counselling for women who were unclear in their decision or were clear but uncomfortable, all sorts of any sorts of issues that came with an unplanned pregnancy and abortion. And I was—I saw a woman who was referred to me, I think, by a GP who had referred her to us as this major um, public hospital for some support around her decision. Um, when I saw this woman, she was probably in her, um, I would say, between her 20s and her 30s, and she was from a migrant background but had lived in Australia for a long time. When I saw her for counselling, she was really, um, when I say ambivalent, she was on the one hand saying that she very much knew she didn't want to have a child, she wasn't ready for that, 
at a, I think she was able to say, look, I'm at a time in my career where I want to keep working. I can't see myself with a child. So she was quite like almost 100% clear she didn't want to have a child. But when I asked her about how she felt about an abortion, she kind of kept smiling at me with this one sort of um, expression on her face. But she wasn't able to tell me in great detail, A, that abortion was the decision. So just because she didn't want to have a child, she wasn't able to say to me the flip side, yes, I want to have an abortion, or yes, I think abortion's right. She was kind of just curious. She was saying, I, don't, I just don't know. I just don't know what I, what I think or what I feel. Um, and so by the end of the counselling, she definitely was not... Um, able to clearly say to me I want to have an abortion which is a very important thing in abortion care is that um, the idea of consent that um, a woman is able to say yes this is what I want I'm not being pressured by anyone else and um, yeah I want to go ahead with this and so for us and for our roles in supporting the doctors and surgeons in that clinic very important that women get to that point so at the end she wasn't able to say that um with any clarity so I rebooked her oh and the funny bit about that was that I had a student in that session and that always it's always the complex cases where you have a student what turned out to be a very complex case I then we worked in a team care model where um at that stage where we would have we're all part-time social workers and so I wasn't able to see her for an ex-counseling session so I booked her with another social worker who worked in our maternity department when I handed over the, the, the notes to, and the case to the social worker, I said to her, look, there's just something I can't put my finger on about this woman. It's like her presentation, her, 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 like her bodily somatic and affect is just something's not congruent with what she's telling you. And so I said to this social worker, you know, maybe just have a bit of a think about the sort of a mental health query and what's going on. If there's anything else that you can pick up that I wasn't able to pick up in that first assessment with her. So referred her on, the next week I spoke to that social worker and she she wasn't quite sure either, but she, she had said she didn't think that there was any mental health issues, but she sort of said, look, um, yeah, the woman's still ambivalent, like she's still not quite sure in her decision. She knows she doesn't want to have a child. So came to the same conclusion I did that really the woman hadn't moved any further along in her decision. She wasn't sure about the mental health situation. Um, wasn't sure that it was an issue at all. So what we did then was we, at the time in the hospitals, I think we had a lot of pressure. Well, first of all, the weeks were getting on. And also um, sometimes what we do is we would send women to clinic, even if they were unsure. And that way, the, sometimes seeing a doctor might just help them progress a little bit either way. So I think we uh, you know, got the woman to agree that maybe we'll send you to clinic and you can talk to one of our doctors and we'll just see how you go then. And then usually the practice would be the doctor would refer her back to us for more counselling and support if needed. I think the woman went to clinic and, I mean, I, this, this becomes a story of, of women being bounced around both internal and external systems. And I think this is what was kind of happening for this woman was that she went to clinic even though her original position hadn't changed very much. I think the doctors pretty much had the same experience with the woman is that they couldn't get consent. So they really, when I talk about consent, they literally have to get a woman to sign a piece of paper that says, I understand the risks of this procedure. I'm going to turn up on, you know, the day for surgery when I book you in and you'll have an escort and these are the risks, etc. None of this um, woman, this patient of the hospital wasn't able to get 
to that point with the doctors either. That, so they weren't able to progress her to saying, yeah, this is absolutely the one I do and I'll sign my name to it. So I think she got bounced back to our service. And as I said, the service model at the time, we she probably ended up having contact with um, probably at least six part-time social workers who were involved all on different days. So it's probably not, you know, optimal care. And we, we always knew at the time that, it, that there were mixed I guess, outcomes of having lots of workers involved. So it's another lesson in how, I guess, that organisations influence your good or bad practice. Um, in the end, I think the weeks were going on and on and on. And um, we got to the point, as I said, I think around, there was also a lot of pressure in the hospital for us to be able to book women into surgery again before she got too far along and not to have multiple bookings, like the cost to an organisation to a hospital of having cancelled bookings is a lot of money. So, you know, there's always that pressure. Um, I think for this particular woman, it got to the point where she, I remember that she had she had gone through clinic again with the doctors, so she'd probably seen them at least a couple of times by now, bouncing back between us and the counsellors and the doctors. And they probably agreed to do her surgery because she was very clearly able to say she didn't want to have a child and that I think theoretically she was saying she wanted to have an abortion. But they booked her for surgery. She couldn't actually... When the day came, I, I mean, I wasn't the worker, but I know what the worker said, she wasn't able to actually physically... Um, move to the theatre door. So she was able to turn up at the hospital but would just present as kind of, um, you know, if we think about trauma, like very frozen, immobilised to the point where she literally couldn't, you know, make her body and herself walk through the door. So it was a very complex case in that all of us sort of had question marks and around what was happening in terms of her mental health and we had a question mark around trauma, but, you know, often with clients where you know there's family violence or sexual assault histories, um, you can get that information from clients by having this ongoing relationship with them and trust. And we were certainly a feminist service that prioritised our, you know, we thought we were quite good at being able to um, support women to disclose to us if they felt safe. And we, a number of us had asked her about, is there anything going on currently or in your past around violence that you think is, you know, affecting your decision? Or you, are you worried about the surgery? Are you worried about, you know, having a physical examination? Um, you know, and, and she was never able to answer us. She was never, she never disclosed to us, you know, where she said, yeah, look, in the past this has happened, so I'm, I hate having pap smears or I hate having... Um, general anaesthetics, they make me really frightened. She just couldn't articulate that. So we just kept having this big question mark, like a, a jigsaw puzzle or a murder mystery that you were like, what's going on for this woman? She can't tell us. In the end, what also kept happening was that she, so she couldn't go through her surgery, but um, we would have an answering machine at work and we would get to work the next day and there would be a message from her phone number at, you know, 3am in the morning, because the phone recorded the time, saying in this really um, young, childlike voice, um, asking us for help. And she would say her name and ask for help, but in this really peculiar, you know, childlike voice. And we would call her the next day and say, do you remember leaving this message? We got a message from you and she would have no memory of it. So what we all then, including 
you know, the manager and, you know, we were doing supervision and case conferencing in, internally with ourselves, worked out was that absolutely this was a woman who had probably experienced um, childhood sexual physical abuse, that this, that childlike voice and, and also her, her, um, her kind of, you know, somatic or bodily presentations of being frozen and unable to move were probably symptomatic of a woman who had experienced childhood abuse and didn't actually know it in her conscious self or knew it but wasn't able to tell us but or a combination of both but most likely someone who it might have been almost pre-verbal or at, a, at an age where she can't she can't remember it so um it's a really you know like it was really hard because I think we we'd say to her you know you called us and she would have no memory of that and so it was really difficult to work with her um and at that stage we didn't have great relationships I guess um, great referral relationships internally with mental health services at the hospital um I think abortion care um it's often crisis work um but I think there's also sort of a bit of a stigma around abortion care and we were a bit sort of left to ourselves in terms of maybe didn't quite have um yeah, the same working relationships or profile as our maternity social work sisters. And also I think, as I was saying before, like trauma-informed care, like this is six years ago, it wasn't mainstream then that social workers or possibly even psychiatrists and psychologists took that routinely into their practice. So I think this becomes a story for us of what could we have done differently and this woman's... um, certainly highlighted to us that there must be gaps in our practice that allowed a woman to become you know um what over 12 she was probably 18 weeks when she left our service she still couldn't consent to an abortion um she was referred on to another abortion service because even though she couldn't go through the appointment she'd ring the next day and say book me in again or i need this so we referred her to an external service we subsequently found out that she couldn't go through with that abortion either, which would have been up to 24 weeks. And the outcome, I guess, was that she then was referred to a private maternity hospital and and had to, because there were no abortions left um, in terms of gestation, uh, she would have had to go on to have that, have that child um, because it, she would have had to birth. Um, so we, we, you know, it was a... It was a really, I was going to say a traumatic experience for workers as well because coming in and hearing a cry for help, literally a cry for help in this woman who was just not able to um, access the care and support that, you know, part of her knew she needed, that she didn't want to have a child but wanted to have an abortion but there was this block and, um, yeah, it was really a very big learning time for us. Like, the first thing I want to do is talk about my reaction to... I know, you want to jump in there, don't you? But it wouldn't be good hostessing. (laughs) Good hostessing, yes, that's true. Because I just realised it would be lovely for our listeners to understand the social work that you practice, Danica. Are you able to talk, tell us a little bit about the social work that you do? Oh, absolutely. 
Um, so currently I'm in a position as a generalist counsellor based in women's health. And so um, the women that come and see me, so I just see women, um, and the range of women that I see within this counselling position is amazing. It, it truly is. And so I get to bear witness to women and their journey, their struggles, their hopes, the joys. Um, so in this position, I'm actually able to see um, young women, as young as eight, um, and then I go up for the whole range. Um, there is a bit of um, majority of women, though, that I do see um, are experiencing or fleeing um, domestic violence. And so this is absolutely a national crisis that is actually happening for us here in Australia or that I can speak of in regards mm, to Australia. Absolutely. Um, and But I also get women just needing that little bit of support for, for that, you know, the particular part of their life that they're, they're going through. So it may be an older woman um, whose partner that they've been together with for forever has just passed away. And so now they're going, hang on a minute, what does that mean for me? Now, I also may have younger women coming in who are really um, struggling that um, with women's health concepts. So it actually might be stuff around, um, you know, healthy relationships for teenage girls. Um, it might be about um, the stress load that actually happens when a young woman's doing their HSE. Um, it might be conflict with parents. And so this is a space that I can then really try and mediate between and go, hey, yeah, this, this is really tough for you right now. Um, let's have a chat about it. But definitely there's, there is an element of case management around um, the women who come and see me around domestic violence. So there's quite a lot of, um, you know, conversations with police, conversations with lawyers, um, a lot of report writing to be able to support that woman along their journey to make sure that the system is actually really supporting them because we actually do find um, sometimes the system is unable to support them very well, particularly mm -hmm. after... Um, going through such you know horrific situations. Would you have ever had conversations similar to the one that this social worker had with this woman, where a woman has come to you undecided about whether she should have an abortion or not? Absolutely, yeah. So where I do work, we do work alongside medical staff. Um, we are a pro-choice organisation. So your first 12 weeks terminations actually can be conducted within the service that I work at. And so being one, there's two social workers in our really small space that we work in. Um, being one of those social workers, it is a part of our job to be able to support women if they are undecided. Um, and so... And the range, we I think we base, there's quite a lot of stereotypical thoughts around, um, around abortion. Um, and for me, working this position, it has really combated these stereotypes of that it isn't just women who have been um, careless with choice or, or something like that. There is a whole range of women that come um, to be able to seek out an abortion. And it, it's definitely not um, just around carelessness. There's quite quite a lot of alignment around domestic violence and having choice over their reproductive space as well. So it's not it's not that you know stereotypical space where you think that it's just a one night space or a a careless decision or or something like that or just young children um, you know young kids. It's not always that case 
we're actually seeing a whole range of women who need this service and it's it's totally mm-hmm. about choice. That actually makes so much sense when you think about the story that we've actually just listened to because actually the trauma that comes before that discussion about the abortion is just as crucial as the abortion discussion, right? Absolutely. So maybe we could talk about our reactions yeah. to listening to that social worker describe her work with this woman. Do go, you, Liz, oh, go, Liz. Look, the first thing that stood out <laughs> for me was this woman being bounced around from worker to worker. And was it my imagination that the number six was... It was. was up to six yes. social workers yeah. um, and doctors. And I just think how... How is that possible? And how, what was that like for that woman? It's telling your story six times, right? Uh, yeah. And the rapport that's really needed around like a trauma-informed approach actually wasn't really able to be established in, in this case. Yeah. I mean, I guess the one... Um, I guess the one positive that I got from that was that all of them were on the same page in relation to them picking up this woman's ambivalence around making the decision and therefore their inability to be able to agree to support her to have the abortion given uh, that ambivalence. You actually got a sense that the communication between the six was really strong so that even if it was six different people, there was actually a continuity of care that was still happening for the person. absolutely. So although there is that reaction, six social workers, there was a part of me that went, okay, if they did it well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for want of a better word, then okay. Yeah. You know? Because it happens. Isn't that, isn't that normal social work practice? Absolutely. That you could end up with a million part-time staff. Yes. And if someone's been bouncing in and out of a service, they are yeah. going to see different staff. And this social worker did state that she you know, followed up the following week. She couldn't actually be that person to be able to hold that interview or that session of counselling. But she then followed through because... You know, I could understand within this type of case, this person would really stick quite close to you to go, actually, we haven't finished our job together. We haven't finished our journey. That's right. Um, so, yeah, in this context, she did the best she could in regards to following along. That's the beauty of continuity of care, yeah. right, is that sometimes you do just have to pick up at a later point. For sure. But, yeah, I also had that immediate reaction, for sure. What was another reaction that you had the story I just felt like there was a lot of pressure on the social workers to get the consent right so when we talk about consent in this space they really needed to hear the words yes I want to have the abortion mm. and with this woman that was something they actually couldn't they couldn't get to that point for so many reasons but that's actually an issue more broadly isn't it Danika? Absolutely I I think consent is something that that we really need to I I think educate for our young women particularly for women though we we are living in a society still where there's a hierarchical system and we we do have to you know working from women's health this is something that we see day in and day out that to give women choice this may be the first time that that actually has actually happened for a woman in in when you're looking at a you know feminist approach yeah um and so I think this is I absolutely, when listening to this story, felt for this social worker to go, wow, the pressure here to be able to get consent, to be able to really support this woman to get consent, but also the pressure of the the space in which you're sitting in. 
you know, when t- talking about terminations, there is only a very limited amount of space in regards to make this decision and to support this. You mean because of the weeks of the pregnancy? Yes. Right. Yes. yes, of course. So the amount of layers of consent and the layers of pressure that are actually evident in this case, it's huge. Mm. The other pressure that I thought was really interesting was that social worker talking about on oh, the cost to the service. And I reflected on how much that has come into the social work thinking now about the care and the service Mm. that we provide, something that I wouldn't have even thought about when I graduated 30 plus years ago. Now it's very common to hear social workers talking about the cost of the service and the price of a bed or... Yes. And that certainly featured in this story, that pressure of time and also the cost. If we had to get this certain consent before we went ahead, and then the doctors came in and they also felt that it wasn't... They didn't have the consent either. I'm just listening to this and thinking, what does that mean for the satisfaction of for the social workers of this case? Like, there they are, six social workers, going in and out with this woman who keeps bouncing around in the conversation. There's no outcome because they can't get the consent established. Like, do they have a sense of satisfaction in their role in that work? What do you think? Well, I I think that underneath that is concern. They know that what they're dealing with here is complex trauma. Yes. They couldn't put their finger on what was, like, the details of that, but they all knew that this was a woman who had experienced some form of trauma, right? Did you Mm. get that sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the social worker was... um, was pretty awesome in that space because she was able to articulate to that to the next social worker who she knew yes. would be seeing her next. So actually to voice that and it should it will show that within the team it was close enough to be able to say, Hey, I've noticed something. I actually didn't pick it up. So it's owning your own practice, which is actually something that's really powerful as a social worker. And then actually admitting that to the next social worker, I couldn't pick it up do you want to give it a go? Yeah. And so this is actually where teamwork really actually yeah. supports um, people coming through service. Yeah, absolutely. The symptoms of trauma were really clear in this case, weren't they? I, I mean, I thought that telephone call at 3am oh, yes. was quite chilling, in fact. But when the social worker explained it as a possible pre-verbal that the, that the trauma might have occurred pre-verbally yeah. and this is how it might have been manifesting, that she had no recollection of it but part of herself had split off. Yeah, like in a dissociative behaviour. Yeah. So just to clarify that for the listeners who aren't coming from a social work background, when we're talking about a pre-verbal trauma, we're talking about trauma happening before the child can actually verbalise what's happening to them. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was really clear that she'd gone back to almost a child self, right? Mm. This trauma could have also actually happened in utero as well. So there's actually, this is, there's two spaces that, and the in utero trauma is actually something that is quite new that the research is coming out, that it's actually a really big space to be really aware of in practice. Wow, we have to do more work in that area. We need to, I want to find out more about that. Yeah, well, we. Yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating. I was kind of sitting with the fact that there's the ambivalence, which is a trauma symptom in itself as well, the lack of yes. de- ability to make decisions yes. in that time of crisis, right? You've got the phone call in the night. You've got the freezing of her yep. body 
So when she went to walk through the door, she physically couldn't do Mm. it. When she went to sign the form, she physically couldn't do it. Even though moments before, she'd been saying she wanted to have that abortion. Absolutely. Her body would not let her. And the amount of engagement that is from her to attend all of these appointments, sit through all of these counselling sessions... She keeps coming back, doesn't she? Absolutely. So she wants to be there, but I guess the question is, does all of her want to be there? Yeah, good question. Right. And that's what the social workers were recognising. Yes. So if it wasn't for the social work practice, like if it was if it was taken out of that sphere, I'm really interested in what would have happened to that woman. Yeah. I'd be really concerned actually. Yes. Um, you know, we look at this the medical model and it's quite very much, you know, structured. Um, no, we, we do this, we do that, and, and that's sort of it. There's, there's no window to really go, actually, how are you feeling about this? Or actually, what other factors are contributing to what's happening for you? Yeah, that's right. I'm not a doctor, I'm not medically based, but, you know, when working alongside medical, you know, to have that social worker in that space, this is what we bring. To go, actually, let's look at the stuff that isn't physically there. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. I think this is a good time to listen to the second half of this story because we're all sitting here going, we're concerned, what's happening, what's going to come next? So let's hear the second half and then let's come back and talk about that. Perfect. Great. So at this time... um, you know, we were questioning a lot about our practice and, you know, the pressures of being in a public hospital system where there was limited resources, um, pressure on the hospital because, you know, missed appointments cost money. Um, you know, that, that was coming back to our service. So we had a number of women. It wasn't just this particular woman, um, but we had a number of women that we could identify where, you know, for some reason they couldn't make a decision. And so they, they had what we call prolonged ambivalence. And, you know, we were struggling to kind of think about how our practice could be improved to assist these women better. Um, And so out of that, we decided to conduct an audit of those women and, you know, go through systematically and look at their cases and how, what, what factors might have played into some of that ambivalence, but also what our practice was and how that potentially could be improved Um, and we we did realize that you know through our team care approach we you know there there was lots of inconsistencies in um, you know we didn't have necessarily a structured psychosocial assessment process so we weren't necessarily asking all women the same questions Um, we weren't necessarily all recording the information even if we had asked Um, We did have a database that we could all access and that we would all be able to input um, that information in. But often there were lots of gaps there. So we, we, yeah, I guess we we kind of brainstormed, well, what are some ways that we can improve? And, And one of them was perhaps we need to look at having key worker and to you know, also think about um, trauma-informed care and, you know, have that influence 
because these women, for a lot of them, you know, we were aware that there were some family violence issues. Um, for others, we just didn't know and we, we would never know because that wasn't actually something that we were routinely asking those women. So we decided that, you know, where there was women that we identified some issue, either they would identify it straight away with us or, you know, they'd had a number of missed appointments that we would then allocate a key worker for that woman or offer her that that as an option to have just one worker who would be, you know, working with her over the course of her involvement with us at the hospital. Um, and, you know, we had a number of iterations of that and kept checking back in, you know, how is this going? How are we implementing it? Are we all implementing it in the same way? Um, so, yeah, so this did evolve over a period of time. And, you know, out of, out of the learnings of working with this particular woman and looking at women that, you know, had not the same but quite similar issues that we realised um, you know actually the trauma-informed approach was was working for these women and it actually impacted on their engagement with us so we were finding that there were less missed appointments um, that women were disclosing more easily because we built up that level of trust that wasn't necessarily there previously when you had to deal with multiple workers, um, that we were able to be more thorough in what we were recording about, you know, when we were asking women. We always had a sense of, you know, sensitive practice and, and just assuming potentially that there was violence but it wasn't always something that we would ask so being more mindful about asking and recording that information and so out of that realizing that for many of these women we had a situation previously to that practice where many of these women ended up not going through with an abortion despite them telling us at various points that that's what they wanted but couldn't just couldn't get to that decision that you know we don't know what happened to those women but many of them you know we assume continued their pregnancies and the women that we looked at post the change in our practice we Mm -hmm. realized that most of those women had actually you know they'd kept their appointments um, and they were able to more clearly make a decision so it wasn't a decision out of not making a decision if that makes sense um you know from just ambivalence that just went on and on until it was too late and they had no option it was women who were clearly making a decision to either continue or to have an abortion and so you know I think that for us meant that we felt that there was um, a higher level of awareness for us of what we were missing. So we ended up, you know, getting some more training around trauma-informed care, what were the presentations. So things like for this woman who was obviously, you know, being triggered, that we realised 
that is why that's what's happening for that woman and we can do some psychoeducation with women now about what that might look like and how that might present for them to give them a sense of a bit more of control around coming to a place like a, a public hospital where you know we can talk to the doctor about potentially what might happen for these women and you know having someone there as support for her where she may not have had that before um talking through some techniques to some grounding techniques you know to help her manage being in that situation just just to be able to give her a bit more context and um, a sense of control, I guess, around coming into a place that could be potentially triggering for lots of women who've experienced trauma, particularly sexual trauma, where they've had no choice, no control, no sense of bodily integrity, that we could then play a part in educating others within that pathway about how best to care for that woman so you know in in lots of ways it was it was a really this this particular case you know was really um massive in terms of our learnings within that service but also within the hospital setting and yeah i can only see that as a good thing really and yeah Don't you love it when a group of social workers get together and question what they're doing and debrief and analyse and break it all apart? <laughs> Only a social worker would actually say that. Of course, <laughs> of course. But I do. I love it that these social workers, we talked about how there were six involved in that original story. And I love how they came together and said, there's something going on with our practice. We need to question it and we need to talk about it. Yeah, what come to me and what I sort of started to visualise is um, these people within the service actually taking ownership of their practice, sort of courage to question their own practice. And, and I think that that takes guts to actually sit and look at yourself rather than look at someone else, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it does. Good on you for raising that because... I hadn't thought about it like that, but it was really courageous what they did because it was putting their practice on their line, on the line. And I also found it interesting that this woman and her relationship with the service really highlighted this. She'll never know this. Yeah. This person will never know that as a result of having come into the service and worked with the six plus health workers, practice change occurred. That improved it for other women, other families. Isn't that the power of the individual story, though? Mm. Like, so many, we see so many stories every day in and out, right? You think about yourself, Danika, counselling women all day. Yes. There's so many stories, and they will very well feel like one of many. Absolutely. And this this comes down to a power of relationship, Um, as social workers we are it is about a relationship that you have with somebody else and listening and being present but in that relationship you can't lose yourself and for if these this service actually lost themselves in this relationship and didn't allow it to be a give and take this really beautiful thing that happens when you do engage in relationship there's give and take 
And so yes, you provide a service, um, but also what do you get from that service? And this is where this critical reflection is so important as a social worker, because it, without the critical reflection, we would never have been able to hear this service actually going, yeah, something needs to change, what are we going to do? And they took action, they owned it, but it was only through looking at their own practice through somebody else's story. And so that's that relationship, that give and take and the importance of it. Mm, Well put. I'd be remiss if I didn't, as the academic in the room, talk about the fact that the way they engaged in that critical reflection and the action that came out of it was the R word research yes can I just put that out there that actually this is an example of social workers in practice doing research and we need to put it on the table that we don't know the formal extent to which this research was undertaken we don't know if it went through ethical clearance or if it was a large research study or if it was something small and informal maybe a quality improvement project or a small internal review that they did as a social work service right so let's just put that on the table but What I loved about this example was they saw an issue in their service, they did some data collection, they did an audit, they trialled a model of new intervention, they watched the trial, they evaluated the results and they improved their practice as a result. Mm. Yeah. And they can they continuated along their journey with that. And so, you know, I, I heard the social worker actually state we actually would check in with each other to make sure that we were still on the same page and so it almost created a little bit more closeness within the group because while change was happening, change is, is hard for us all to remember if we're in a, you know, if we've already done this job for a little while. So to be able to have that open dialogue to go, hey, we've discussed this, how are you going along this change? Or how have you found the women that you've seen? Have, has it worked? Or, you know, within your own practice, is it working? Um, but also that's what practice-based research is. It's when you see a gap in service and from your practice, you're actually trying to create change from that gap that you found, right? And social workers, when they do research, they do research in the same way that they practice. They talk a lot. They reflect a lot. Like, that's how we are in our professional selves. So the idea that we would research differently to the way that we practice is very strange, I think. It makes perfect sense that this is how the social workers went about doing their research. See, I think more academics should be like you. Oh, I agree. Because <laughs> <laughs> No, but when you break it down like that, as, as Danica and I are the clinicians, when I listen to that, I think, yeah, you make it sound so much more simple than what I had anticipated it was before I knew you. Okay. So in my clinical practice, I would have just thought that this was what you did as best practice you reviewed your practice if you had a sense of what was going on was not working you would look at that talk to your colleagues talk with clients look at what is best practice going on and then implement and review since getting to know you you go "Ah, that's just what research is well, what More social work research social is. social workers should know that. More clinical social workers would be relieved to know that that's what research is like, I think. So I'm just going to dare to say that that's because social workers, by and large, get taught research in really boring ways that don't actually speak to everyday practice. Hallelujah, sister. So totally we could agree. probably leave that point there because we would talk for hours on that one. 
But can we just finish off this discussion by talking about the way that actually the service was improved, right? So they brought trauma-informed practice to the women. They did. And not just to the women, but to the other staff who were working with the women. I love that too. And that was that systems approach. It's, it's one thing for me as a clinician to work with this woman around psychoeducation, um, care of self, knowing what triggers were, that kind of thing. But then they took it to the next level and they educated the doctors so that the doctors were also aware about this woman and how to best work with her in a way that was trauma-informed and caring of her. Yeah, it's a really real multidisciplinary approach, right? Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And in doing that, you actually, we alleviated the pressure that we sort of talked about when we did listen to that first um, social worker talking. We alleviated pressure by turning it into a trauma reformed in practice. We alleviated the pressure off the, the social worker because they could spend time, you know, with, with yeah, this well, That's right, because they were really struggling under that time absolutely. pressure, weren't they? Yeah, and then also alleviating the pressure for if they were referring on, they knew that woman would be safe and looked after in the same type of approach. So therefore there would be no other like systematic um, abuse or trauma being re-perpetrated because not not fitting or not mm. aligning with the service that they've come from. And so there's quite, just by doing this, you know, as we sort of see in practice, it is a simple way of going, as social workers, we just question things. This is a part of who we are to make sure the practice is okay. They've done it really beautifully and articulated it for us to actually see how it does work in practice to get a better outcome for, for everybody actually involved. Yeah. I love how you've rounded it off for us. That was really well, well was. said. Thank you very much. Yes. On that point, let's finish this conversation. This has been great. Thank you so much, Danika, for coming and joining oh, us today. Thanks. Thanks it's so much. Thanks, Liz, for the cup of tea. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, cake. and cake. And cake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for Liz's cake. So it is always so good to have you talk with us, and hopefully we'll hear from you again. Oh, I would love to. Thank you. Thanks, Danika. Liz, as always. Lovely to spend time with you in conversation. Thank you very much, Mim. I want to thank our social workers for bringing their stories to us. These uh, stories came from one of the many call-outs we've done in the last nine months of our podcast. And and it's really great. If there are social workers out there who have stories that they would like to share with us, please get in touch. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We have emails. Got all those new fandangled. You know those ways that people communicate with social workers. Carrier pigeons. Carrier pigeons. Notes in bottles. Smoke signals. If anyone wants to try any of those communication methods with us, we're completely up for that. Would love to engage. Um, Huge thank you to Ben Joseph and Justin Stesh, our producers on the podcast. And we hope you all have a really good rest of your day. Take care. Bye. Bye. See you later.